0: And again, welcome to Freedom, to all of the Graceport family, to the Freedom family, and to our guests. It's so good to have you here. It's, uh, it's nice to see the congregation returning. It's starting to feel a little less like pandemic and a little more like church, so it's great to have you here today. Again, we welcome in those of you who are joining us online uh, across the country and in multiple other countries, and especially our dear friends from our Nigerian campus in Sapala. We say greetings to you this morning before we turn our attention to the word uh, let me just uh, remind you or tell you that uh, next Sunday is a big step forward for us because we're going to be reopening kids world and we're going to be taking every precaution within reason uh, that we can to ensure that the kids are safe and that the workers are safe so we'll be doing temperature checks upon check-in everybody will be wearing all the adults will be wearing masks so If you've got kids who are sixth grade and under, that will affect them. For those of you who uh, haven't been around when that's functioning like normal, the preschoolers are in that area through the entire service, and the kids who are in elementary school are dismissed at this point in the service at the conclusion of the music time and before the message, they're dismissed to the back. So we look forward to having that up and uh, going. Uh, As Brad mentioned, that little white card that's in your bulletin, If you get bored while I'm preaching, you can just start writing notes uh, of what you want to ask us. But uh, we wanted to have that in hand for the town hall meeting. When we are uh, done with the teaching time, we'll uh, take however much time, a little bit of time to just talk through what we've been discussing and look forward to being able to share together about that. Now, I will invite you to pull out your Bibles and open to the table of contents. Just trust me on this. Turn to the table of contents unless you were a Bible driller growing up. Look for the book of Jonah. It's only two pages long, so it may just be easier to start in the table of contents. If you hit Psalms, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, turn right. You'll you'll get to Jonah eventually. We're beginning a new series today that uh, is entitled Embracing Your Life Mission. And we're going to be in the book of Jonah for the entire uh, next four weeks. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, in spite of what Tony said... I'm going to preach this message like a fat man going through a barbed wire fence. I'm going to touch on a few points and keep on moving. We've got (laughs) ground to cover, and we're going to move on through that quickly as we get introduced to Jonah, and I think you're going to enjoy this series. It's going to be practical, and it's such an intriguing and unique story that I think you'll enjoy getting into this as we consider today what to do when you cause a storm. All of us go through storms, and they have various causes. Sometimes it's just... The events of life when you live in a broken world, life can be stormy. Sometimes it's because the devil hates you and he wants to create as much havoc in your life as he can. But sometimes the storms in our lives come purely as a result of our choices, our rebellion, our whatever, our junk, and we'll create storms for ourselves. And so what we're going to see today is one of those kinds of storms and consider what do you do if you're in the midst of a storm and you're realizing, I think I may be part of the problem here. Jonah's story is a a good word of instruction for us. Now, just a, a quick intro to what's going on in Jonah. This is taking place about 800 years before Jesus' ministry on earth. And in the time that Jonah lived, the greatest empire on earth was the Assyrian Empire. This is the Star Wars equivalent of the Empire. The, ooh, you know, heavy, heavy bad stuff when you think of them. This was sort of the ancient equivalent of the Third Reich. These were uh, very powerful people, but very brutal people. Uh, the capital of. The Assyrian Empire was in Nineveh, greatest city on earth at the time. Today, the ruins of Nineveh are in Iraq on the banks of the Tigris River across from Mosul. And in Jonah's day, these were just scary, scary people. It was a vast city, huge number of people living there, and it was an impressive city. It it had public parks and thoroughfares and, and canals. I mean, it was really an impressive city. But the things that went on in this city, we won't even get into. Just so barbaric, so cruel to the people that they had conquered, and they hated the Jews, and the Jews hated them. They, were, they had already fought multiple battles with the Jews. They had killed many Jews. Ultimately, they are going to be the ones who sack Samaria and who dis- defeat and destroy the northern ten tribes. It's that Assyria, and it's, it's their capital that are in question here. So Jonah can't stand these people. These people can't stand the Jews. So knowing that, you'll appreciate that much more how difficult this message is. Jonah 1.1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Everybody say Tarshish. Okay, that's Spain. You probably haven't been to Tarshish lately, but it's in Spain. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. That's the operative thought here. If you can just picture a map, Jonah is in Israel, and God calls him to go 550 miles due east. That's east, we'll say that way. God told him 550 miles this way. Jonah says, I don't think so. I'm going to get in a boat, and I'm going to go 2,500 miles due west to the end of the known world. That's called running from God right there. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. That's important. This wasn't a random storm. This was a God-ordained storm. such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Let me just tell you, when you are on a ship and the sailors are freaked out and they start throwing stuff overboard, be afraid. Be very afraid. It is bad. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? That's a really good question. Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they, they rolled the dice. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. He is the man, he is the problem. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? And then I love, parenthetically, it says, they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Can't you just see this pre-storm conversation that they had? You know, So where are you going? Are you headed toward home or away from home? Is this business or vacation for you? And Jonah's like, uh, it's none of the above. I'm running from God. This, I'm on a mission from God, but I'm avoiding the mission, so I'm trying to escape that. So they already know that part. Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, "...the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to Him." Isn't that incredible? It's a bunch of pagans and one believer on a ship, and when they see what happened with with that one man, suddenly they realize that Yahweh is the true God. And they're now making commitments to Him. Verse 17, "...now the Lord provided, or the Lord appointed, a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish." Three days and three nights. Before I was a pastor, I was a student pastor. And of all the things that I did with the middle schoolers and the high schoolers that I had a chance to shepherd, the greatest adventure that I ever got to take was when we took a pretty good sized group of senior high students and we chartered two sailboats out of Miami, the kind of boats that you crew yourselves. You have a captain on there so you don't die, but you, you work the boat for a solid week, day and night. And uh, we sailed from Miami. We were supposed to be sailing initially to the Bahamas and sailing through a lot of the uninhabited and sparsely inhabited islands. When we set sail the first day, it was such rough weather and such high wind, the captain said, there's no way we'll get across the Gulf Stream today. It's just it's going to be too violent, so we'll just sail around in the Keys for a bit. So we did that for a day. And so on day two, he said, it's still really rough We can get across, but it will be brutal if we do. So I think you should just poll all of these kids and and adults and see what they want to do. Well, you know, teenagers think that they're bulletproof. Nothing can happen to them. They can handle anything, or so they thought. And they're all like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. And so we set sail, headed for the Bahamas in high seas. Now, they're making that decision before they've seen what high seas look like because we're in protected waters and then we we're sailing on out and eventually you lose sight of florida and you move into that deep deep water that's the color of grape kool-aid it's purple deep water and the waves just start getting bigger and bigger well i'm an amusement park freak i don't get motion sickness i love the wildest rides so as we're Getting into high seas, there are three or four of us that don't get motion sickness. We're up on the bowsprit of the boat. It's a sixty-four foot sailboat, and you can go all the way out on the bowsprit. And you're white knuckling, holding on for dear life because the waves had gotten so huge. With every wave that rolled under the boat, it would stick that bowsprit down into the the water of the next wave. And then, as it would roll under the boat, you would shoot way up in the air. It was just like being on a, the best ride ever at Six Flags for hours. So I'm up at the front with two or three teenagers, and we are having the time. Of our lives. It's like riding a, a wild bull. And we were so focused on that for the longest time, I never even gave a thought to all the rest of my, my youth. Now, when we were in calm waters, the captain had gone over several things with us, and one of them was he said, I'm going to give you throwing up lessons. Like, well, that's a strange thing to say. It's like this is my boat, and you will pay attention to this. When you throw up, these are the ways you don't do it. You don't do it standing. You don't do it in, a, in the bathroom. You don't do it in a bucket. You're going to lay on your belly. You're going to hang your head off the side of the boat, and you're going to stay there until you're through throwing up. Well, after an hour or two of riding that bowsprit, I finally turned around and looked for where are the rest of my youth. The entire back half of the boat was surrounded by kids laying on their bellies, with their heads hanging off, just. Throwing up everything down to their toenails. For hours we sailed through stormy, stormy seas. I learned you, you don't go below deck in that kind of rough weather. You'll, you'll beat yourself to death. And if you don't get motion sickness, you'll get it down below, which is part of what's so amazing about what Jonah is doing. He's asleep in the middle of this thing the captain by the way told me after we had finished this trip old wizened guy he had been doing this for 25 years week after week after we taking groups to the bahamas like that he said i just want you to know one thing in 25 years of doing this that was the roughest crossing i've ever had in my life and i took you and your kids across there so when i read this story i have just a little bit of a frame of reference it Nobody was throwing tackle overboard on our trip. I can only imagine what it's like for Jonah and these people when the seasoned sailors are throwing everything overboard and going, this has to be the hand of a god doing this to us. Well, as we read about Jonah's experiences on the sea there, there are seven things that I noticed that I want to just point out to you that are really important about your life mission. Do you realize that God has a a mission for your life and has a calling for your life? And it's not just one narrow thing. It is this great, lifelong, multifaceted mission and calling that he has for you. I I love what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 when he says, God has made us what we are. Some of us need to let that sink in. We're so frustrated with what we've become that we need to be reminded God made us what we are. In Christ Jesus, God made us new people so that we would spend our lives doing the good things that he had already planned for us to do. How cool is it to realize that before God ever made you and built into you all these specific talents and passions that are so unique to you that he charted a course that would involve you connecting with him and his power to accomplish really significant things in the world and in the lives of other people. Now, you may not believe this, but, but people who study human behavior and strengths and weaknesses tell us that every one of us who are just normal functioning adults have somewhere between 600 and 700 specific talents. Can you believe that? Most of us would probably struggle to name what 10 of our talents are, but you have between 600 and 700 talents. They are sort of unique to you. Your, your set of talents and experiences are not the same as mine. God crafted those things uniquely in you because there are things that he's going to do through you that he's not going to do through anybody else in this room. And God planned that. He ordained that in advance. This is your mission, your calling. Well, God had a calling for Jonah. Jonah. And we learn a lot about that calling as we look together at this story. And I want to just, I'm just going to move very quickly through these seven things that I want you to notice. And the first one is this, that my life mission, your life mission, will somehow help others. When you think about your mission in life, if the things that come to mind are, are things like, I'm going I'm to work out every day of the week for the next year i'm going to get in the best shape of my life i'm going to eat clean and diet well i'm going to read a a book a day for the next year you may say all kinds of good things like that and those are are worthy goals but let's be clear that's not your life mission because that's all about you god's life mission for you is about other people God has you on a mission that is designed to address the things that he's concerned about. What is God concerned about? God is concerned about bringing justice to people who are suffering injustice. God is about bringing healing and relief to people who are in pain and who are in bondage. God cares about people and he wants you to meet the needs of people. And so when you... Find the cross-section between your passions, your interests and experiences and real felt needs in the world around you. When those things overlap, there's a good chance you're tapping into your mission and your calling right there. In Jonah's case, the people of Nineveh who were just in a self-destruction mode, they were the ones that God was concerned about. And God sends Jonah on a mission to minister to them, to speak truth to them. Verse 2, it says, Nineveh is a big city. And I've heard about the many evil things that people are doing there, so go there and tell them to stop doing such evil things. It's not that God is wanting to destroy Nineveh. God loves the people of Nineveh, and he wants to see them changed. And that's why he's sending Jonah on this mission, which brings us to the second truth. My life mission and your life mission may scare us at first. There's a good chance that it will when we start to see it clearly, and there's a clear reason why that would happen. Because God's mission for you is bigger than what you can do. How many of you believe that? God's mission for your life is far bigger than what you can pull off. It's intimidating when we begin to grasp what God has called us to do. Have you ever been frightened by the realization, I think God may be be telling me to do this, And yet you look at that and think, but there's no way I could do that. Because God looks at the situation and says, well, I can do anything. I can do anything I want to through anybody that I want to. So I can pick out John over here. And there's no limit to what I could do through John. Because God's saying all of my power is available to work through John. Well, imagine being in Jonah's shoes. He's a Jewish guy from a little village of less than 500 people living in the Holy Land. He's not a city guy. He's not an Assyrian. He's scared of the Assyrians. He's, he, he really hates these people, and now he's being sent to the largest city on earth, and the message that he has is not an easy message. This would essentially be the equivalent of God speaking to you today and saying, I have a mission for you, Forest Biko. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Afghanistan, and I want you to preach to the Taliban, and I want you to tell them that what they're doing dishonors the Lord, and I want you to call them to change their lives. That would be an easy task, wouldn't it? Not so much. I mean, can you imagine But can you imagine if the Lord said, I want you to to take off next week, go to Tehran, and I want you to preach to the most extremist Muslims, and I want you to tell them the error of their ways and the hope that's to be found in Jesus. Would you be a little nervous about that? That would be pretty scary, wouldn't it? God's calling at times will be scary because it seems bigger than what we could do. Well, in response, it says, Jonah tried to run away from the Lord. He went to Joppa and he found a boat that was going to the faraway city of Tarshish. As I said, God is calling him to hike 550 miles to the east into Iraq. I have a globe on my desk. And this morning as I was thinking about this, I, just, I pulled out my globe looking. I mean, it's, it's polar opposites. Now, in Jonah's day, they didn't know about the British Isles. They didn't know about North America or South America. The end of the world for them was the other end of the Mediterranean. Spain was the the far limits of the known world. And so when Jonah knows he's supposed to go 550 miles in this direction, he says, I want to find a boat, and I don't want to go as far that way as I can. That's exactly what he did. He headed 2,500 miles to the west. Now, that is seriously committed to running from God. But I want to ask you a question. When you think about what Jonah is doing, is there anything in your life that God has spoken to you or you felt impressed toward that you haven't done, that maybe you have avoided or you have run from or been afraid to even press into and try and come to a bottom-line answer of, is God really calling me to this? Third truth, running from my mission causes bad consequences. Anybody ever experienced that before? Running from God will always cause bad consequences. Now, we're free to choose. We're always free to choose whether we'll embrace God's calling, His mission for us. But here's what you're not free from. And that is the consequences of the choices that we make. You get to choose whether or not to do it. But if you choose not to, you can't avoid the consequences that will go with that. Now, one of the things that I want to make sure you don't miss in the story is that there was a ship that was just so readily available to take Jonah where he wanted to go. And it would be really easy in Jonah's situation to say... You know, I'm obviously not the right fit to go to Nineveh. I don't like those people. How can I possibly help them when they can't stand me, I can't stand them. There are all these barriers between us. And look, I mean, here's a ship. It's as if God sent this ship here. It must be the will of God that I go to Spain rather than to Nineveh. And the thing that I want you to notice is this. In the critical decision-making moments of your life, There will always be a ship. Satan will make sure that there is always a ship available to take you in a different direction. The presence of a ship does not mean this is the will of God. Let me give you an example. Suppose you're in a marriage where you've become frustrated, unhappy, disappointed you can rest assured that at some point in time, there's going to be a ship available to you to take you in a different direction. There'll be another woman, there'll be another man, who suddenly is just so nice to you, they're so attentive to you, that they just care so much about what's going on with you and over time it's going to become obvious you know what i could jump on a different ship and go in a different direction maybe it's i mean surely it's only god that would bring such a positive person into my life maybe it's just the will of god that i abandon this ship and i hop on that one friends the devil will always offer an alternative when god is calling us to something significant and challenging but when we embrace that It comes with bad consequences of two kinds. First of all, if I run from God, I can count on the fact that God will oppose me. When I'm actively running from him, God will oppose me. It says in verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. That is the hand of God. Causing opposition have you ever had an experience in life where you made up your mind that you were going to do something you were going after something regardless of what anybody else said And yet it just seems like there is an invisible hand that's keeping you from making any progress with that you ever experienced that that it's like Why can't I move in this direction? I want it so badly. I want this relationship. I want to be with this guy. I want to be with this guy. I want that job. I want that promotion. And it's like an invisible force is keeping it from happening. Sometimes that invisible force is the hand of God saying, that's not what I have for you. I have a different plan. And as much as you just are being strong-willed and saying, I'm going to do this, sometimes God just says, no, you're not. And I'll appoint a wind to stand against you, to keep you from doing that, because I know what's best. The second thing that will happen is if I run from God, other people will get hurt too. This is the heaviest thing that I'll say today, but we need to not miss this. When a husband runs from God, his wife suffers. His children suffer. Or his grandchildren, or his business, or his church. When a, a wife runs from God her husband, her family will suffer. And and our running from God may be doing some little secret thing that we think it can't hurt anybody else because nobody else knows. Nobody else knows how I'm using alcohol or pills as my crutch. Nobody else knows about my little closet habit that I have with my computer and, and these images. Nobody knows about that. It's not hurting anybody else that I, I look at porn on the side. Nobody knows the little bit of cheating, this little flirtatious relationship. Nobody knows about what's going on, the, you know, the money that I'm stealing from the government by not paying taxes or whatever. My little secret stuff isn't hurting anyone else. And the thing that you need to know is when we're working against the will of God, it will always cause suffering, not just to us but to those around us. Not because God is cruel, but because God created a moral universe where when we get out of step with what God has called us to do, the gears begin to grind against us. And it always brings suffering on those who are right around us. And that's exactly what's happening in this story. When it says the storm was very strong and the, the whole boat was ready to break apart. The sailors are scared to death. And so they begin to, to throw the cargo into the sea. That is a picture of what happens when we get out of step. When we start moving in the wrong direction, we will consistently begin to jettison the things that are are really valuable cargo in life. I mean, think about it from the perspective of these sailors. There's no point in sailing across the mid if you don't deliver your cargo. That's what it's all about. And they are abandoning what they're taking this trip for. But when you're in the middle of a storm and when you're out of step with God, you will begin to abandon the things that really matter, matter the most. You'll begin to abandon time spent alone with god you'll begin to abandon quality time with your spouse or with your kids you'll begin to abandon things like taking care of yourself with exercise and doing the healthy things that you need you'll begin to abandon things like attending church or small group that's the cargo that we throw overboard in the middle of a storm that's a really good indication in those moments i'm causing the storm when i begin to do that and what's jonah up to oh he's down below asleep how do you do that how do you pull that one off? Everybody else is scared to death; they're throwing everything in the ocean, and this sucker is down below, just snoozing away, unknowing and uncaring. When I, I read about what Jonah is up to, I'm reminded of the fellow who said to his friend, "You know what the two biggest problems in America are today, don't you? It's ignorance and apathy." What do you think about that? His friend said, "I don't know and I don't care." <laughs> well, that's Jonah. I don't know and I don't care. I'm I'm not interested. Well, the man went to Jonah and said, is it your fault that this terrible thing is happening to us? Tell us what you have done. They are realizing we're suffering because of your choices. It really does beg the question for us. Is there anybody right now that I'm causing to experience difficulty because of the choices that I'm making? Because they don't have to know my secrets in order to suffer as a result of my secrets and my rebellion. Fourth truth, the longer I run from God, the worse it gets. The storm kept getting worse until finally the sailors asked, what should we do with you to make the storm calm down? Now, I know that for most people, 2020 has not been smooth sailing, has it? I mean, this year has been a bumpy year. So everybody's had some measure of suffering. But the thing we need to be alert to is we can make the storm a lot worse by the choices that we make. And if you look at your life and you realize, I think I probably have made this a lot worse than it needs to be for me, how do I begin to counteract that? The answer to it is very simple. It's summed up in one word, surrender. Surrendering to the will of God, surrendering to the person of Jesus is the beginning of seeing relief. But the longer that I resist that, the worse it's going to get. The fifth truth, if I'm fighting God's plan, trying harder doesn't work. If I'm determined, I've figured out what I want with my life, what I'm going to do, it may not be working out. So I just decide I'm going to try that much harder. Trying harder is not going to get me past God's opposition to that. I want you to notice particularly verse 13. John, see if this doesn't sound like this could be a theme verse for Celebrate Recovery. It says instead the sailors tried harder to row the ship back to land safely but they could not turn it around for the raging storm was out of control three phrases that I want you to notice in that tried harder they couldn't turn it around and out of control some of you watching and listening right now realize that describes your life we we come to a situation where we've got a problem and where do we start we start in recovery by saying i don't have a problem All I need to do is try harder. I've got this under control. I can control this. I can manage it, and we'll learn the same lesson that the sailors learned. Trying harder won't do it. They they said, we're going to turn it around. How many times do you hear people who are in desperate situations, John, and they, they believe they can turn it around if they try harder? And you can't begin to recover until you get to the final phrase here where it says, It was out of control. Isn't that the beginning point of recovery is to to acknowledge my life is out of control. It is unmanageable because of of the choices that I've made. And now I'm positioned to do something positive in terms of surrender. Now the final two truths are the positive ones, the good news. When you and I do what God wants, things will usually calm down, sometimes almost instantly. If we're in the middle of a storm that's caused by our rebellion, there's going to be peace that will immediately follow when we just finally surrender. It says in verses 14 and 15, Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God, O Lord, don't make us die for this man's sin and don't hold us responsible for his death. O Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. And then the sailors picked up Jonah and they threw him into the raging sea and the storm stopped at once. That's not a normal storm, is it? I mean, that's just not how, if you've been on big water, you know that's not how storms subside. The waves don't just suddenly go calm unless it is a supernatural storm. Jesus encountered a supernatural storm one day when he was sailing across the Sea of Galilee. And when he's on on his way to the shores of Gadara, you remember that? And then this terrible storm hit. You know that it was a supernatural storm because Jesus spoke to it. And suddenly it's calm. That was a, a demonically driven storm. Well, This was a storm that came from the heavenlies. And the moment that Jonah, in his own peculiar way, just surrendered to the situation, there's peace. Now, it's a strange way to surrender. He thought he was probably going to die in the process when he said, just throw me overboard. I don't think he envisioned that God had an ancient version of a submarine here, a submarine with skin on it, in the form of a fish. I don't think he envisioned that. He's just... At the point of going, just throw me into God's hands. Just toss me off the ship. The moment that he surrendered to that, there is peace. There are some of us in the room today, some watching and listening online, that if you're honest, the number one need in your life is just for some peace. Surrender leads to peace. If you want peace in your life, begin by saying to the Lord, whatever you want, Whatever your plan, my answer is yes. I offer my life, my family, my everything to you. I want to be yours. That is the beginning of peace. And that brings us to the final point we'll make today. And that is number seven. When I accept my mission, God shows me mercy. Somebody say amen. Isn't that good news that no matter how much we may have run from God, how long we may have rebelled against him, when we finally surrender and accept his plan God shows mercy and in this story we see it in verse 17 it's it's the first clear act of mercy here the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights now I know we love to sort of chase rabbits and and we just have all kinds of questions What kind of fish was it? And how can you live inside a fish for three days? It doesn't make sense. Is this just a parable? First of all, it's not a parable. This really happened. Part of the reason we know that it happened is because Jesus recounted it and used it it as a teaching point and not at all in the way that you would use a parable. This happened. And as believers in Jesus, people who understand that God created everything that exists by His powerful spoken word, it's not a stretch for us to realize that God could do in a fish something that was one of a kind, unique, that he created a livable environment for three days where he had oxygen and where he wouldn't be burned up by stomach acid. He's swallowed up by a great fish in this uniquely God-created situation. In fact, the passage speaks to us in, in a really cool way, the key word here being appointed. The Lord appointed a great fish. He ordained a great fish. In the little book of Jonah... That word shows up three times. The Lord appointed a wind, he appointed a storm, he appointed a fish, and in the final chapter he appoints a worm. It's interesting the things that God will appoint and use in your life and in mine to speak to us and to redirect us. Whether it's a wind or a worm or a fish, God will use whatever he needs to to get our attention and to get us back on course. That word that gets translated as ordained or appointed, the Hebrew word there is manah. Everybody say manah. All right, there's your, here's your Hebrew lesson for the day. That word that gets translated uh, appointed or ordained, it also means literally custom made. God custom made a huge fish. We have to guess it's probably a, a whale shark. It's it's not a whale. The word for whale exists in the Old Testament Scriptures, and they don't say whale here. They say fish, so it's probably a whale shark. Those things grow like 40 feet or longer. It's plenty big to accommodate what God is doing. But God custom-made a whale shark or some other fish for this situation. And the thing that I want you to notice here is that it is a picture of the mercy of God. First of all, he's not going to let Jonah drown because he's not through with Jonah. Sometimes we're through with God, but He's not through with us. He still loves us. He's still pursuing us. That fish is a reminder. God still loves and cares about Jonah as He cares about the people of Nineveh. And He has made a unique, custom-made situation to show His mercy to Jonah. He's going to do two things. First of all, He's going to give Jonah the time out of his life. You know, in in modern-day torture... People will be put in, in these um, chambers where it's, you're deprived of pretty much everything normal. You know, there, there's no light. You just Everything else is turned off. Sense deprivation chambers is a form of torture. Well, in a way, that's almost what he's in, but he's fully alert. He can't run anywhere. God's giving him a place to think And get his head and heart straight. And then he's going to use this fish to deliver Jonah up on shore. Now that really speaks powerfully to me of the love of God and the mercy of God. You ever had a season of your life that you spent inside the belly of a fish, figuratively speaking? I have. I remember it vividly. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago about the darkest season in my life. Going through a divorce leaving a church that I loved, in the months that followed, I was living out my equivalent of being in a custom-made situation created by God where I got to live my life in the belly of a fish. What it meant for me was I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. I, I wanted to just put my head down and just go full speed and just work hard and just do what I had always done. And suddenly I was just given this big time out. Suddenly, I didn't have family to take care of. I didn't have a church to pastor. Nothing in my life was normal anymore. And for five or six months, in a very real way, it was kind of like being swallowed up by a fish. Just being swallowed up where I'm spending a lot of time alone. And it's not what I would have chosen to do. And it was the best gift that God could give me. Because some really important things emerged in my life during that season. Two things above everything else. The first thing that just spoke so powerfully to me through that season was God loves me so much more than I ever realized in my life. I felt the mercy, the tenderness, the kindness of God in my life more in that season than I had at any other time in my life and came away so convinced of the depth of God's love for me. I'll tell you the other thing that happened for me in that dark season was I came away clearer than ever. That the call of God on my life was unchanged by my circumstances that God still had a mission for my life. And what that ended up doing for me was I emerged from that season knowing whether or not I ever hold a job at a church, whether I ever get paid another dollar by a church, I know this, I'm going to spend the rest of my life serving Jesus. There is a calling, there is a mission for me, and I came away knowing this God who is so good loves me so much more than I ever dreamed, and I am going to spend my life serving Him. It's an act of mercy when God gives us a time out. When he custom makes a situation where we don't just get to put our heads down and just work harder and just try and just la, 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 la and get through it. When we just have to stop and deal with ourselves, who we are and where we are and where we're headed. Some of us need a time out to do that. Some of us need to get reoriented around what matters and how much God really loves us. So I conclude with a simple question. Do you know what your Nineveh is? Do you know what God is calling you to do? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Don't be distressed if you don't because the beginning point is the same regardless of whether you know what your calling is, what your mission is. The beginning point is surrender. God, I believe you're good. I believe that you love me and I don't need to be in control of my life because I'll steer it in the wrong direction. So I surrender to you. Whatever you want to do with me, with my family, with my resources, it's yours. And that may sound really scary. The surprise is when we do that, there's this incredible peace that comes over us. Because peace accompanies surrender. Would you join me as we turn to the Lord together in prayer right now? Father, I thank you for your call on our lives. Thank you for how you love us. We're so grateful for your kindness and your mercy toward us. God, I pray that in ways that are just so unique and personal for each one of us in the room and watching and listening online, that you would speak and move in ways that we would recognize the calling that you have for us. Lord, for some of us who have not walked closely with you in recent days, I pray that That today the truth would land in a way that doesn't burden us, but that it calls us to surrender. Thank you that we can trust you with today and with the future. I want to just invite you, as we're bowed together in prayer. Why don't you, in a fresh way, just offer your life to the Lord anew? Why don't you just invite Him to completely have control of you, of your family... Of your future. And if you've never done that before. Why don't you today trust Christ. To forgive you of your sins. And to take control of your life. If you want to do that. Why don't you just pray. Just a simple prayer that says. Jesus I need you. I believe you died for me. And I'm asking you to now come live in me. Would you clean the slate? Would you give direction to my life? Father, I thank you for how faithfully you hear, answer, and lead our lives. We offer ourselves, our families, our churches, our future to you. and We just say, have your way in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.